Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio, and Vibe is an investment platform focused on the biotech industry. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dr. David Kern, the co-founder and CEO of 4D Molecular Therapeutics. We're going to be talking about one of the most exciting modalities out there, AAV-based viral vectors, and uh, learning a little bit more about some of their programs and their approach to using directed evolution to identify new ones. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alok. Good to be here. Awesome. Maybe to kick us off, love it if you could perhaps give us a quick background on yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, again, Dave Kern, co-founder and CEO of 4D. I'm currently also an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley in, in bioengineering and MCB, where I teach biotech entrepreneurship and am co-founder and a board member for the Life Sciences Entrepreneurship Center. So again, thanks for having me here today. My career, very briefly, I've been in the industry for about 30 years. I'm a physician scientist by training. I've been a serial entrepreneur. I'm on company number five now and also a serial CEO and leader. So it's been a wild ride in the field of biotech. I've really enjoyed both positions in academia and in companies. I've been in large companies such as Celgene and Onyx and also my own startups. And I think Really what I love is being an entrepreneur, starting transformative platform and product companies, developing products that make a huge difference for patients with really high end medical needs. That's really what drove me into biotech. And I've been, again, doing it for 30 years and loving every minute of it. Awesome. It sounds like you've been involved with a few companies that have had some pretty good runs prior to 4D. What, any particular ones that have been your favorite? Oh, uh, it's like picking your favorite children. I couldn't do that. but. I think I've learned a tremendous amount from every single one of them. I was the first development employee at a company called Onyx, which eventually we went public and the company was eventually acquired by Amgen for $10 billion, I guess, 15 years after its founding. So I learned a tremendous amount there. That was my first entree into biotech. We had blue chip VCs and CEO and CSO at that company. That was just a great learning stage for me. I've had the next, a company called Generex, which was a viral vector-based therapeutics company that I kept private throughout, eventually sold that to some private equity investors in Asia. That company I built during really the darkest days for gene therapy and viral vectors and cancer immunotherapy. So learned a tremendous amount about bootstrapping and finding high net worth individual networks and charitable funding and partnership in regions across the world from Europe all the way to China and Japan. That was a wild ride. I also had a company I named Ignite. Again, I was founder and CEO of that as well. And that was a cancer immunotherapy with viral vector-based oncolytic viruses with Pfizer, where we agreed up front, this is what Ignite was going to do. This is what the Pfizer team was going to do. And after three and a half years, Pfizer had an option to acquire the company for a preset price. And fortunately, that research went really well. We identified a 90 candidate to take into patients and Pfizer acquired the company. So learned a tremendous amount about that business model. And then 4D, my current company, a different business model and trajectory altogether. So I think I've learned a tremendous amount from each of the companies I've been involved with. And each one has had a unique set of 
external circumstances, internal technology opportunities and challenges that led to very different business models, different trajectories for each one. That's awesome. Would love to learn a little bit more about that in a moment. I feel like there's very few folks out there who think about biotech from a business model standpoint. Obviously, far more, I think of it from a scientific standpoint, which makes sense. So eager to drill in more on that in a moment. From there, would love it if you could perhaps give us a quick entree into the world of viral vectors, especially AAV-based therapies, genetic medicines. Love to hear what's happening currently in the space and some of the challenges that we're seeing as of late there. Absolutely. So genetic medicines, you know, I think of as basically DNA or RNA-based therapies. And the opportunity there, the favorable attributes are that you can make these things incredibly powerful and highly specific to either enhance expression of the target you want or knock it down or knock it out completely. There's gene expression, there's gene editing where you modify the DNA of the target cell itself. There's RNA therapies, oligonucleotide therapies. So it's an incredibly rich and growing area in the biotherapeutic space broadly. The challenge for these sorts of medicines are twofold. One, always, you know, a challenge is going to be immunogenicity, right? These are biological agents. They're not small molecules. So there's a chance that they're going to do some sort of an immune response that could cause toxicity or clearance of the product over time. And so that's always an issue to deal with. And then the next even bigger challenge really is delivery, right? So these things work spectacularly well in a dish, but in a human being, given all the physiologic issues and immune response issues, et cetera, delivery is a big challenge. And I think that's something that's held the field back and has been getting solved in iterative steps over the decades. We started with people were looking at non-viral vectors and viral vectors, non-viral having the advantage of not being as immunogenic and hopefully allowing for redosing and a large transgene encoding capacity. You can stick a lot into a lipid nanoparticle. The downside is they're not very efficient in getting to the nucleus. A virus, on the other hand, has evolved for millions of years to very efficiently get from the cell surface all the way to the nucleus. And so when we use viral vectors, we take advantage of that evolution. And so viral vectors have the distinct advantage of more efficient transduction. The downside is they each have a specific transgene carrying capacity and AB in particular has 4.8 kb and that's about it. And then they can be more immunogenic, making redosing more difficult, sometimes leading to decreased gene expression over time or acute inflammatory related toxicities. So that's the world of viral versus non-viral. And then with viral, we think about ex vivo cell transduction with something like a lentivirus where we permanently modify a hematopoietic stem cell. And those work by and large very well. Gene editing works very well there. And there's not a lot of unmet need there. But for in vivo delivery, there's a huge opportunity, but where things get challenged, we need better vectors that are more efficient and specific for getting to the cells in the body where they need to go and at doses that are safe and frankly, at doses that are a reasonable cost of goods to actually have a profit on your product. And that's the specific area of need that we at 4D have focused on is to really come up with a technological platform to invent highly optimized, customized vectors for each specific tissue that we want to treat in the body. Amazing. 
And it seems like a really interesting opportunity to use biology, if you will, to improve delivery and improve biology as a whole as well. Would love to hear a bit about some of the vectors, no pun intended, of the facets that you're looking to improve when you think about the programs and the platform you're developing at 4D and some of the prioritization that you go through in that exercise. Sure. One of the mantras we have at 4D and frankly, I have with in my personal life and with my kids raising them is to always start with the end in mind. What does success look like? What do you want, in this case, your vector to be able to do to be successful? And that's just not one thing. That's a number of things. So we start by asking the question for any product that we want to develop, what cells need to get the vector into? What distribution of the cells do we want to target within the target organ we're going after? What dose range do we want to be in such that we have a reasonable cost of goods and safety? We want to think about things like delivery method. Do we want to go intravenously? Do we want to use aerosol administration? Do we want to use intravitreal administration for the retina? And these are all, frankly, things we've explored and achieved success with. And do we want the vector to be resistant to antibodies in the human population? That's another axis that we have to think about. We come up with a target vector profile, and that's on the whiteboard, frankly. That's just saying, what do we want to invent? And that will have, again, these five or six different characteristics that we define. And then we use directed evolution to invent a vector that matches that profile. Awesome. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora, talent optimized. I'd love to learn a little bit about 40's current programs. Before we do, there was one thing that I'm less familiar with in this space, and I'd love some perspective from you on, is the juxtaposition between oncolytic viruses, which you've worked with in the past, versus viruses for delivery of a payload. Could you just maybe give the audience just a quick high-level juxtaposition of those two? and maybe some of the challenges as you think about optimizing the virus in both of those cases. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about the target profile, you want the vector. If you want to deliver a genetic medicine for treatment of a non-cancerous disorder, whether it's cystic fibrosis or wet AMD in the eye or you name it, a heart disease, you really want a vector that gets efficiently the tissue, high-level transfer of the cells you want to transduce, and then deploys the gene payload that was inside your vector. And then you want that vector to go away. You don't want that avitopsin, for example, hanging around because it's going to be immunogenic. So you want it to go in as stealthily as possible, not activating the immune system at all possible and drop off in its genetic material in the nucleus and then leave the DNA there and then have the vector disappear. Now, cancer is different. In the case of cancer, when we treat with a virus, we actually need a couple things. One is 
we like the immune response as long as it's in the cancer, because that means we can put a bullseye on those tumors and tell the body's immune system like, hey, there's a viral infection in this tissue, in this case, cancer, and recruit the immune cells into the cancer to destroy it. So in that case, we like the immunogenicity. In fact, we arm those viruses, those oncolytic viruses, with immune cytokines like IL-2 variant, GMCSF, a number of those IL-12 is being used. In one case, we want stealth, non-replicating, drop off the DNA payload, disappear. In the case of cancer, we want high degree of inflammation in the tumor tissue. And we also want the virus to replicate, but only in the cancer tissue. So in other words, we want to engineer a virus in a way where it amplifies and makes thousands of copies of itself per cancer cell and destroys that cell, lyses it, spreads to the next cancer cell or spreads to cancer cells at a distance and really amplifies it. Because again, getting into every cancer cell with a non-replicating virus just isn't going to happen. There's too many cancer cells throughout the body, especially with metastatic disease. What we can do is take advantage of a selectively replicating oncolytic virus to do that for us and then induce an immune response to the cancer, which can also control the metastases systemically as well. Great question. Two viral vector-based systems, but radically different goals and different approaches. Interesting. Certainly highlights the, at least for me, the opportunity and the variety that comes with this unique modality, right? We'll love to pivot into some of the active programs that you have. I know there's several in the clinic now, as along with a few more kind of following fast behind. Love to hear a little bit about those and their status. Absolutely. So, you know, as I said, we're very much a platform and a product company. We use our platform to invent customized vectors to target specific tissues. And then when we think about the products, what we're doing is taking that vector the target is a particular tissue, and then inserting into it a transgene payload that's the actual therapeutic and a promoter that is appropriate for that disease. And that promoter will either restrict expression of specific cell types or it will be broadly active because we want it expressed in as many cells as possible. So that's how we think about our platform to invent the vector. And then the products are using those vectors with the payloads. One of the great things about this platform is we can make a vector to target a certain tissue type, and then we can build out multiple products using that same vector. For example, in the retina, the big need for AV gene therapy was being able to treat the entire retina and do it safely as an outpatient requires what's called an intravitreal injection into the eye. So you inject into the vitreous of the eye behind the lens, and that's a, a simple outpatient procedure. It takes about five to 10 seconds. It's done thousands and thousands of times every single day in this country for diseases like wet AMD or diabetic retinopathy with blockbuster drugs. That was the need. And we used directed evolution to invent an AAV vector that was able to achieve that simple intravitreal low doses that are safe, non-inflammatory, and get high-level expression throughout the retina. So once we had that in hand, we asked the question, okay, what are some rare genetic diseases we can go after? And so we surveyed the literature and said, okay, here are genes that are monogenic recessive diseases with high unmet need where you know kids are going blind. And so we developed transgene payloads and products for those like XLRP, X-linked retinitis pigmentosa or choroideremia. And then once we had safety and activity with those in patients with the highest unmet need, we then moved in with a product for a large market, wet AMD 
which again is a $15 billion global market every year. And there, what we did is we expressed an approved biologic called a flibercept or ILEA right from the vector itself. You can leverage that and in modular fashion, build out a portfolio of multiple products with that one vector. And that's a very efficient way to design and develop drugs. And it dramatically decreases the risk of each excessive product. We've done that in the retina with three products in the clinic. We've done that now with aerosol delivery to the lung airways for cystic fibrosis is now showing incredible promise in the clinic. We're the first team to ever get gene expression in the lungs of CF patients with very high level expression and good safety. And we've done the same with a vector that targets the heart for a disease called Fabry disease. So you can see how with this platform, we can come up with lots of different products across multiple therapeutic areas and develop a portfolio of products in each therapeutic area very, very efficiently. Yeah, it's amazing. I think that ability to tie in different indications, but on a common technology stack, as we would say in the tech world, right, seems like a really powerful way to get scale and velocity, right, from a therapeutic development standpoint. 100%. And I think it gets around the biggest problem in biotech is it's a brutal business model, right? You think about if you said to somebody in tech, you're going to have to raise over $500 million to get your product approved and that there was a one in 10 or one in a hundred chance of it working, people would laugh you out of the room. And yet that's what we do in biotech. It's really brutal. So anything you can do to increase your probability of technical success and decrease the risk, decrease the cost is really allowing you to be more diversified is critical. And so that's what this particular platform has done for us is allows us to take lots of shots on goal very quickly. And then once we find a vector that really works in humans, we're just going to leverage that over and over again for different products because we've really de-risked that particular vector and that tissue target. It's really interesting that you use the phrase of probability of technical success. I'm sure you're probably filled with PTRS more generally for especially larger companies. I'm curious if that's something that you do on an ongoing basis with your existing programs and your pipeline. Do you and your team actively go and review sort of the scientific data and reassess kind of the probabilities you do systematically or not? 100% we do. We have something called our portfolio review committee where we say, okay, we've got these vectors. We can go after essentially any therapeutic area. We can evolve a vector to target it. There's a huge number of diseases with high emit need in each of these areas. So we have this huge opportunity, but the challenge is, okay, what do you focus in on? You can only take so many shots on goal. And so yeah. one thing we try to do, we say, look, there's enough complexity and difficulty with gene therapy, viral vectors, the immune response, manufacturing, regulatory, there's all sorts of risks around us. Let's minimize target risk as much as we can. And so we elected to start with monogenic recessive diseases where we say we know exactly what gene is missing. And there's a good likelihood that if we replace that, we can either stop the disease progression or in some cases even improve patients. So that's where we are. And then the next level was to say, okay, are there approved protein therapies that we can vectorize? So in wet AMD, we didn't have to identify VEGF as a target. We didn't have to invent ILEA. Regeneron did that. Mm -hmm. What we can do is we can vectorize the ILEA protein and simply express it in the retina where it's going to be 
constitutive expression right in the retina where you need it after a single injection and you don't need to get injections every eight weeks. So that's another way that we were able to reduce our target risk by expressing an already validated and approved biologic. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. It does bring up a different question for me though, and I'm sure it's one that I've heard a lot of other biotech executives and founders also struggle with, which is this tension between platform versus products. It seems like you've navigated it successfully so far. Would love to hear some advice you have and maybe even some frameworks you've used when it comes to that tension when building your biotechs. You point out the incredible benefit of having platform and product, but also the challenge. And that is, if you have a platform with no products, then you can be a service provider or a provider of reagents or components of other therapies. And you can make a business out of it, but you're not going to be transforming medical care on your own, certainly. And from a business standpoint, if you don't have your own products that you retain the rights to, it's hard to really scale and get up into that multi-billion dollar place that we all want our companies to grow into. So I think you have to have a product opportunity that you own yourself, really, and hopefully multiple opportunities to really build a big company, I think. So you need those products, but if you bet the farm on one product or one technology, then that's pretty high risk because we know that most drugs that go in development, frankly, fail. It's just the reality. And so having a platform where you can innovate and create new product opportunities and have a slew of different products and a diversified pipeline really, I think, decreases your risk and increases your probability of success. So that's why I like platform and product companies. The other thing is that when you have a platform, by definition, you should be innovating in a way that makes your products potentially transformative and highly disruptive versus what's been done before. I was never interested in Me Too drugs or things that were incremental advances. I was saying, hey, I just really want to focus my career on making big advances. And to do that, you really need a platform, ideally. So that's the advantage of this. But the challenge is obviously getting that balance right. And one of the dangers I found with a platform product company is that the biotech industry is so cyclical and will go through a downturn every three to five years, so it will be a big reset. And what happened in those situations is boards of directors, shareholders, they all say, hey, we got to tighten our belt here. And so what they do is they say, let's just focus on the lead product. We'll just turn off the platform for a little bit and we'll come back to that in the future. And what I found at Onyx and at Generex, my first two companies, that never happened. Once you make that bet on the lead, now your whole company becomes about that one lead product. And that's a very high risk, high reward model. Now, we happen to get fortunate in both those cases that the lead product was good enough that we went public in the case of Onyx and acquired in the case of Generex, but didn't have nearly the impact we could have had had we maintained the platform and had multiple products. So when I started 4D, I said, I want to really be true to this concept of maintaining the platform and having multiple shots on goal in diverse therapeutic areas. And so I knew that I could not go straight out to venture investors to start the company because I knew that when times got tough, they would have no choice but to tell me, hey, just focus on the lead. And so we started with smaller, narrowly defined partnerships where we did deliver vectors for other people, 
but it allows us to raise enough money that way without losing control at the board or at shareholder level. It allowed us to raise enough money to prove out the platform, show the promise, develop some products of our own, and then bring in the investors such that we already had a diversified portfolio and we had more board control and shareholder control. And so it's a great opportunity. It's hard to live it out and maintain the platform in downturns. And that's how I approached it with 4D. And fortunately, it's allowed us to really truly have a platform and product company. Well, it certainly sounds like a lot of experience. And I imagine both good and bad have probably gone into that strategy and that framework that you just highlighted. I'm curious, when you think about that mindset of deprioritizing the platform, focusing on the lead program, do you think that attitude is really tied to all investors or specifically the more conventional life science sort of folks? How much of it sort of investor selection, finding the right folks who jive with you and with the mission as opposed to just the way the industry operates? That's a great point. I think that the typical early stage investors who are looking for 10x wins and they understand that one out of 10 of their companies is going to win and the other is going to fail, they diversify between the different companies. So they're more likely to have this in this approach that says, hey, just bet the farm on one product. And if it doesn't work, so what? Because we have 10 other companies like you. I find that crossover or public investors are more open to the platform and maintaining diversification. And certainly, I think pharma venture funds are very much about the platform. So you raise a good point. It's not just about when you take money from investors for these companies, but who you take it from. Very interesting. This whole concept of fundraising, I found when I spend time with folks in the tech world who raise money, venture capital versus biotech, there's a pretty big difference between the financial literacy, the investing and fundraising literacy between those two camps. Would love to hear a little bit about some of your work trying to educate the next generation of founders, especially those in academia who might be really knee deep in the science and passionate about that, but also would love to see their science from the lab translate to a patient. What advice do you have for folks like that as well? First of all, it starts with humility. Like you can be the most brilliant biochemist in the world or molecular biologist in the world or virologist in the world. And you might have just amazing scientific tech that's published in Science, Cell, and Nature, the coin of the realm in those worlds. But making products and making business, they're very different things. So I think it starts with humility. You have to know what you don't know. And so that's where I start with most of these people. First of all, yeah, you might be the world expert in protein X or uh, virus Y. You are coming into a whole new world here. And it's just as complicated. It's just as sophisticated. And you need experts to support you. And so I start with that. I think one thing, customer discovery is so important. When you think about entrepreneurship, customer discovery is really going to your customers and saying, look, I've got this widget, I've got this technology, I've got this platform. What would you like to see me do with it? What would help you with a problem that you have that you really are willing to pay good money to solve? Because after all, it's a business. It's not just good science, it's business. You need good science, but that's not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. You need to understand who your customer is, what's your business model, and then you need to do a lot of work before you start the company to really understand what the unmet need is out there and make sure that you're building a company that can address your customer's needs. So I'll give you two examples. 
When I started Generex, it was cutting edge science with an oncolytic virus that we thought we could use systemically and could stimulate an immune response against the cancer. And we were world leaders in that space and felt like, hey, this space is amazing and we've got the leaders in it. We went out and we tried to finance it, partner in it, and we realized that, boy, there's just tremendous skepticism and really a lack of interest in viral vectors at that time. It's changed now but lack of interest in viral vectors and lack of interest in cancer immunotherapy, which is incredibly hot now. But we were starting the wrong company at the wrong time. It was great technology, great science. We could start that today very successfully, but it was the wrong. We didn't understand what we were up against because we hadn't done customer discovery. Fast forward to 4D, after I you know, learned for 20 years and had the hard knocks to prove it, I knew from the very beginning, I said, what is it that people want us to do with this AAV directed evolution platform? Found out from partners and investors what they thought were the problems that needed to be solved, where they thought the opportunities were therapeutically, and really started the company in those areas so we could raise the money and do the partnerships. Those are the starting points I start with anybody who wants to start a new company at Berkeley or anywhere else is you start with the end in mind, start with customer discovery, try to understand what the business model is not just what the cool science is. And then I think the other thing is that not all money is created equal. So I think a lot of people think, oh, I got $10 million for my company or $5 million for my company. That's a home run. Not necessarily. You could have killed the future of your company if you took it from the wrong people or the wrong terms, or if you did a partnership where you gave away too much. So now there's not enough left for you to build a company. So I think that's another thing to educate people on is, it's important to raise capital to build your company, but the type of capital you bring in, the needs and interests of the people you bring it in with better be aligned with what you're trying to build or you can actually kill value of your company. Very interesting. Very important selling advice, I think, for those who are looking to start companies. And to be honest, at least more than just folks coming out of academia, I think there's also a fair number of entrepreneurially minded folks in big pharma who are also looking to start companies themselves. So I think it's worth everyone kind of heeding that kind of uh, advice from you. So thank you for that. I was just curious, you know, maybe to close out, would love it if you could perhaps also comment on what you've seen as some of the big differences between sort of the East Coast and versus West Coast kind of methodologies and the cultures between them. First of all, they're highly complementary and they're both great. This biotech's very much an ecosystem. So we need the small company entrepreneurs. We need the entrepreneurial VCs who create companies. We need the big pharma. We need FDA. We need the investors. So it's very much an ecosystem and everybody plays a role. I would say what was interesting to me is how regional the investments tended to be. So for example, with 4D, we happen to be based out down the road from UC Berkeley for historical reasons. And we built the company there and we got incredible traction from everybody west of the the Rockies. Denver-based funds like Janus and Aramark and then a Bay Area fund such as Viking and BVF. Bill had those guys coming on multiple rounds, but it wasn't until we got a lot bigger that we started to, frankly, attract the Boston and New York-based VCs. So I don't know if that's a factor of us starting in the Bay Area, that they're more comfortable with companies that they can go visit and meet the investor and meet the entrepreneurs face-to-face on a daily basis. But that was certainly our experience was that the West Coast was much more open to raw early startups. And it wasn't until we had much more proof of concept and pharma validation and investor validation that we go out to New York and Boston and start raising money out there. And then I think also the Boston is 
really got a critical mass of these VCs who actually start their own companies and they recruit in entrepreneurs to run them. But they come up with the company ideas. And I think that's been more of a Cambridge phenomenon than necessarily out on the, the West Coast. Yeah, very much we've seen a resurgence of the venture creation, venture studio model. Part of it, from my perspective, has been just the economics are different, perhaps a little more favorable to the venture firm than if they were investing in someone else's company. But time will tell as those different models play out. I think there are better terms. And also, it allows them to ensure professional management from the beginning. Whereas I think if you come across a company that's spun out of academia, frankly, the science may be world-class, but the management often is either a professor, more frequently a postdoc. So I think for these professional VCs, they're probably also, they get better economics if they just pull the technology out and start the company themselves. And then they can insert in professional management from day one, as opposed to having to do that over four to five years. It's a lot of sense. Awesome. David, just want to thank you again for being on the podcast today. A lot of wonderful insights and uh, really excited to see how 4D's platform and programs evolve. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.